Welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalist. Matt Pagel here once again, riding this ship solo. Riding the ship? No, I drive the ship solo. Jesus Christ, what is going on with me today? Anyway, Matt Pagel here once again, bringing in, bringing in uh, the second installment of our February series, The Vault. Uh, we've already done John Carpenter's The Thing. That that uh, that movie is in the vault as our standout example of sci-horror. Uh, maybe, you know, certainly a, a top three John Carpenter movie, but I think one of the best science fiction horror movies. Not one of the best. The best science fiction horror movie ever made, um, along with um, along with one of the best, um, with some of the best special effects, along with uh, some of the best atmosphere and one of the best mysteries ever in a horror movie. Uh, so the thing is our first entry, and I think a deserved first entry into the vault. But now we are moving on to our second vault entry, and what are we talking about this week? Oh, of course, we have to be talking about one of the greatest sitcoms in TV history. Um, we're putting every season of the full volume of this ongoing, still ongoing series in the vault. And of course, I'm talking about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, um, which is now is going to be on the air for now, what, uh, it's 16th upcoming season, I believe, whenever it, it does finally drop. It will be the 16th season if It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, and we'll have some uh, some trivia and stuff for you, some background, for, background info on uh, It's Always Sunny here in a little bit. But I do want to kick off this episode with a little lightning round question for you. So what would the gang be like if they were from your hometown? Right? Like if, if these were, if this show was It's Always Sunny in uh, Poughkeepsie or It's Always Sunny in Grand Rapids or It's Always Sunny in Indianapolis. What would those people be like if they came from that town? So I'll give you a second to think about that. And while you're thinking about that, I, I'm going to go ahead and I'll do my hometown as well. In fact, I'll get, I'll shrink down. We always say, um, you know, whenever I'm talking with, um, with someone on the podcast, uh, I was just, we just kind of casually mentioned that we're from Cleveland and it's one of those things. I, I think most people from certain areas do this. It's just shorthand for anyone who's not from the area to say, well, I'm from Cleveland and you know, whatever. It's just people immediately know what, where, where you're talking about. And it's kind of code for Clevelanders. You say, I'm from Cleveland. If someone else is from Cleveland, they go, oh, where from? You know, like if there's a second layer to that, it's like, where are you from in Cleveland? Are you from the east side, west side? Are you from the south suburbs? Um, you know, that that that's the whole thing. So instead of, instead of just kind of getting generic with Cleveland, I'm actually going to go with what would the game be like if they were from my hometown of Macedonia, Ohio? So here we go. And I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give some deeper explanations here for everything. So uh, I'm gonna start with Dennis and D, and I'm gonna swap them. Dennis and D wouldn't be a brother and sister in this scenario if they were from Macedonia. They would in fact be a married couple. They would be a married couple that started dating in ninth grade, had a kid in eleventh grade, and have hated each other ever since twelfth grade. That is the Dennis and D from Macedonia. Mac, appropriately enough, um, Mac would be the burnout who has worked at every single bar and restaurant in town since he was 15 and recently has decided to become a racist. That would be the Mac from Macedonia. Uh, the Mac from Mactown, as a matter of fact. Um, Charlie. Charlie has worked for the city maintenance department since he was 16 and has supervisors that can't legally drink yet. That would be our Macedonia Charlie. And Frank, Frank, of course. Frank would be the divorcee who bounces between the same two bars every Friday night in case someone he knows shows up at one bar or the other 
or if he thinks there's a, or if he thinks there's a better chance at hot woman of a hot woman being at one bar or the other. But either way, he's going to bounce between the winking lizard and the blue willow, and he's just going to be doing that all night as he gets drunker and drunker. That is Macedonia Frank. So there is my version of the of the gang. If it was if this show was called It's Always Sunny in Macedonia. Uh, if you think that I might have been talking about you, if you know me and you know the show, uh, you're probably correct. All right, let's get into a little background info on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It is, in fact, the longest-running live-action sitcom in TV history. I actually misspoke earlier when I said that it was uh, around for. It's going into its 16th season. It's going into its 17th season. It already is 16 season in. 16 seasons in. It's been running since 2005. Um, in fact, uh, its 15th season was the season that put it past the the Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. Uh, to cement it as the longest-running live-action sitcom on TV. Um, obviously, the um, if you were to look this up, however, the, the the big disparity is in episode number, right? Like, back in the day when they were making every TV show, it got like 25, 25 episodes. Um, you know, even sitcoms got 25 episodes. And obviously, Sonny only does, uh, you know, I think they're, they topped out at like 12 or 13, but they generally do 10-episode seasons. So the episode count is completely, completely different. I think it's like... 430 some for Ozzy and Harriet and uh at Sunny Sunny I think is like 170 some. So um you know they need to run for like another 20 some years to uh like 25 years to eclipse uh, Ozzy and Harriet in terms of episode count. Um and obviously this doesn't include as I mentioned live action so you know throughout the Simpsons um throughout it throughout like half hour variety shows and talk shows and things like that we're just purely talking TV sitcoms live action TV sitcoms in this case and uh, Sonny has the crown there for the longest running for the longest running one. Matt Shackman has directed the most episodes of Sonny, forty three episodes, um, and it was kind of funny um, remembering back when he remembering back to one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones, uh, one of the best action episodes of Game of Thrones, I should say, uh, from the later season, I believe season seven, when um, possibly season eight, I can't I can't remember exactly, but when. Um, um Daenerys and her Dothraki blood riders uh annihilate the uh the uh, the loot train. Uh, in fact, I think it's just I think that episode is just called the loot train attack. Um it, you'll you'll notice that that episode was directed by Matt Shackman and it was just very funny to think. I I know that I know that when Chema and I were essentially just covering thrones ex- exclusively at that point, we were having a laugh about that. Um there's some great memes that came out of it. If I could find if I could find one from David Chen, who's a um, you know a pop culture critic reporter uh, across various platforms and, and podcaster, et cetera, et cetera, he had one of the best. Um, he made one of the best memes of all time that kind of blended um, that blended. And I'm not doing this any justice, but I'll describe it a little bit. It blended uh, the opening of "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" with the opening of um, of that uh, particular scene where Daenerys attacks. And trust me, it is fantastic. If I can find it by the time uh, I post clips for this, uh, it'll this will definitely be one of the clips. Uh, continuing on here, Fred Savage, yes, that Fred Savage has directed eighteen episodes of of the show. Uh, Daniel Tyus and Todd Bierman have both directed sixteen episodes apiece. Richie Keen has directed fifteen episodes, and Randall Einhorn has directed fourteen episodes. These are just like the your top contributors. Um, there's a whole sheet of you know it's a TV shows so, of. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of people who have directed one or two episodes, right? There's very rarely do you have, um, very rarely do you have a a director that, um, you know, 
directs every single episode in the season. I know it's happened for some shows, and actually, I, th- I feel like it happened for Sunny at the very beginning. I could I could be wrong though, but I, I feel like the the first one of the first two seasons, um, like Fred Savage or someone basically directs almost like every episode. But I, I could be wrong. I have to look that up again. Um, but I'm not going to right now. Um, so obviously, we have the the principal ca- the principal cast of uh, Rob McElhenney. Caitlin Olson, Glenn Howerton, uh, Charlie Day, and um, <clears throat> and of course Danny DeVito coming in, in the second season. Uh, but <clears throat> excuse me, but outside of the principal cast, these are the most these are the most common appearing uh, actors and the characters that they play. We have Mary Elizabeth Ellis, um, who is married to Charlie Day in real life. The waitress is in, is in thirty seven episodes. David Hornsby, uh, Rickety Cricket, is in twenty five episodes. Artemis Pebdani plays Artemis, uh, is in 17 episodes. Lynn Mary Stewart, uh, Charlie's mom, is in 18 episodes. And Sandy Martin, Mrs. Mac, Mac's mom, is in 16 episodes. And of course, we can't uh, we can't talk about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia without talking about the the fantastic theme music. Um, that opening kind of whimsical whimsical little um old old school ditty um that is synonymous with the show and we'll we'll get into some more details with this in a little bit but uh the song is actually called um temptation sensation by heinz kissling and you know it's a it was a real even though it's obviously synonymous synonymous with the show now it was just a complete cost-saving measure because i'm pretty sure i'm 100 sure that this song is available in the public domain so like there's no cost there was no cost to them when they put this together and you know opened with that uh you know with that opening title sequence and all the visuals of philadelphia which again were uh, also you know handheld filmed by um i believe it was uh i believe it was rob and charlie were the ones who filmed the uh the opening sequence for uh for the show as well so you know a money-saving maneuver but just serendipity right that it's it has become one of the most recognizable pieces of this show. Uh, Temptation, Temptation Sensation by Heinz Kissling. If only he knew that that song was going to be used uh, for one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Um, more music. There is more music here uh, that actually informs uh, informs the show. And it's the very title of the show is informed by an AHA song. Uh, everyone knows Aha, you know the Take on Me, and one of the great one of the great music videos of all time with the blending of uh, you know what looks like uh, you know comic book hand animation and real life animation. Um, that band they had a song uh, that there was originally the the title of the show was originally It's Always Sunny on TV, um, and uh, the the show would have focused you know it, basically the same kind of you know the same characters were involved or whatever, but. Um, it would have, it was going to focus on, you know, the struggling actors, um, that, that Rob Glenn and Charlie were at that point in time in their careers. Um, before, uh, obviously it gets a big rewrite to, to focus on just some scumbags from Philadelphia. But, uh, anyway, so the original title was called the sun always, this, uh, it's always sunny on TV. Um, and that is a take off of the aha song. The sun always shines on TV. Um, and it's actually a pretty solid song. Um, uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll drop in uh, I'll drop in uh, the video or something here at this point for uh, for something uh, on on Instagram. Who knows? Um, so yeah, that's where the the title that's where the title comes from uh, from an Aha song, and this is much better than the working title for the show that they had that they had um, or the working title before settling on. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. 
or I should say it, before it's always sunny on television or on TV and then it's always sunny in Philadelphia. The working title was Jerks. And while true, and while true, terrible thing to name your show. Uh, you cannot, I, I'm sorry, it's just one of those things, you can't name a TV show Jerks. Um, it, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work out. Um, it, it's one of those things that wouldn't work out the way you want it to. There's a difference between, you know, the jerk, the movie, um, and just calling a TV show jerks. It sort of, it's one of those things um, you might be, you, I don't know, you might be intrigued by something called the jerk, but if you, if you were like, if you're being sold a TV show and it's just called jerks, you kind of already know what it's about and you're not, probably not that intrigued, but you hear it's always sunny in Philadelphia and it's just like okay, I have to know more about this particular show, and I, I guess in the in the first season before anything had even uh, been filmed, they were kind of kicking around the writing room, and some people didn't like the title, and they're kicking around like, well, so what do we, you know, come up with a better name for the show then? And obviously, no one came up with a better name for the show, and even the show's title is uh, and it has become somewhat iconic uh, since uh, it, there there truly isn't anything else. It's it's an unusual title for an unusual show, just building on all the all the uniqueness that is uh, that is this particular show. It's just layer after layer of unique little, um, just unique little happy accidents, and just sort of the fact that I guess if someone had found a better title, this show wouldn't be called "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," but no one could. And uh, just a last little sort of uh, trivia bit here before we get into the uh, the main discussion. This is the wordiest TV series ever made. Um, it doesn't seem like it, but it is. On average, uh, the episode on average episodes have 176.2 words per minute. And what really contributes to this, and if you're a sunny if you're a sunny fan, you know exactly what contributes to this. And if you're not a sunny fan, um, this might seem shocking to you because 176 words per minute is a fuck ton of words per minute. However, it's because the gang routinely will just have unhinged rants that go over each other. So at any point in time, you'll have, you know, it'll, it'll start as a discussion between Mac and Charlie, and then uh, Dennis jumps in, then Dee jumps in, then Frank jumps in, and it's just talking over each other. They're all saying something distinctly different. They're all on some different part of a discussion and an argument or whatever, but it's essentially what would amount to multiple pages of dialogue in like a typical scene are all happening at once. So the words per minute count gets kicked through the roof. And it is, it definitely is also a, a, in a lot of episodes, the dialogue's a little bit faster paced anyway, but for sure, these sort of, these sort of uh, moments where the gang is just ranting at each other without, you know, without actually listening to what the other person is saying or multiple other people are saying is what jacks the word count up as high as 170. And trust me, this is a lot of words per minute. Try, try, you know, it's one of those, here, little thought exercise for you. Find something that's 176 words long and see if you can get it in coherently in one minute. And that's why this uh, this word count gets jacked up so high because you just have these multiple moments, usually multiple times an episode, we have these sort of moments where one, two, three, or four characters or even five characters are just talking over each other. Um, so you, you have this weird, you have this weird sort of little anomaly in terms of the uh, in terms of the word count. So I was a I was a Sunny fan right from the jump. 
Um, I was on board right away. Uh, that first seven uh, seven episode season uh, that was <clears throat> just a, a a small bit of a small bit of television magic and miracle and a miracle that it, it it managed to get a second season and obviously get to the point where it is today. But I was in right away. However, I didn't watch it live right away. Um, I ended up watching it. Um, and this is, this is kind of funny. This is a sign of the, this is a sign of how long this show has been going. Um, so just, just for comparison's sake here, the most recent, um, the most recent finale dealt with, um, the, the, the rapid change in technology and how, um, people have been removed from so many basic processes and how that like infuriates Dennis. Um, so that's the most recent episode, the, the most recent season finale. Um, when I watched it, I had to, I had to find a pirate site that was mirroring mirroring all the episodes. Essentially, um, you know, a couple of weeks after they happened, so I I ended up watching the first season, and I literally mean mirrored in this case too. The um, the images were flipped as well um, on this site that I watched it on. I can't remember the name of it, but ended up watching it on my computer monitor. Um, was just enthralled with it, even though I knew it was everything literally was backwards. Um, and it was, you know, I, I was pirating it illegally, whatever, did not fucking care. Um, but it's just, it's just so funny though, that that's how I had to watch. That's how you had to watch TV shows that you missed in 2005. I mean, I know they had like, um, you know, you had, you had DVRs and stuff weren't totally new, but not that many people had, you know, not that many people had a TiVo, um, which was a, again, young kids, that was like a real thing. Um, now everyone just has like, now it's a standard when you get cable, you get like a DVR, um, t- set top box. Um, but not everyone had a TiVo. Um, not everyone, uh, did on demand stuff. There weren't streaming sites to just go find these episodes. A lot of times you were going to ha- even, even as late as 2005, if you wanted to catch an, if you wanted to see something you didn't see, you had to very oftentimes wait for, uh, months, weeks for sure, but sometimes months for something to get played again. Um, that's just how the tv landscape just that was the tv landscape uh back in the day you know we had to watch our shows uh, uphill both ways and in the snow basically but so i watched that first season essentially right after it aired um i know i had a friend who who was like all about it and i was just like okay this sounds incredible i have to see this and it was it was and i you know again streaming or pirated it um watched it on a mirror site watched a lot of tv shows like that at that point in time on mirror sites um, but was just right on board right away and was just so attracted to the, just so attracted to the concept of kind of grungy a-holes going about their day being grungy a-holes to everybody else. It just, something about it clicked and it, it really was like, I wasn't, I, I know some people are kind of like, I, I know people who do not like this show and it's because the main the their main argument essentially is that they don't like the characters and well yes the point you're not really supposed to like these people um and i was on board with not liking them right away but still being enthralled with the situations they got themselves into with people who are just as bad or worse than them um it's just absolutely fantastic i i like i said on board right away and knew that like this was going to be something that i for me, it was going to be um, if I could, you know, it was going to be an appointment TV for me as as far as I could, as far as I could. Um, and like I like I said, it's that was first season was two thousand five. Here we are now, nineteen years later, and it's still 
it's still like must-see TV for me. Um, that's that's how much I think of this TV show. Now I will say this though, it wasn't really, it was, it wasn't like really that I I felt like this thing transcended right away. It was just I just found it immensely enjoyable right away. I think this show took a little bit of this show took a little bit of time to really kind of. Um, really even begin to push into the idea of it being a vault-worthy show. Um, In fact, I think it took, for me, it took literally until the fourth season finale. Um, And if you're a sunny head like me, just saying that you think you know exactly where I'm going to get to here with this. Um, It's so it it just the first three, the first three and four, you know, and the the bulk of season four, the almost all season four, I, thoroughly enjoyed the shenanigans the narcissism the nihilism the just the way that they were with each other the way that they were with other people i loved all of it but it wasn't until the season four finale the Nightman cometh uh this is the episode where charlie writes a musical to try to secretly woo the waitress um into a relationship something that he had been trying to do uh since the first episode but this is the episode for me that it, it definitely begins to transcend where it's bringing old storylines and everything back to the front. Um, so we have this kind of circular nature of the show going back to its very roots and in a very creative way. Plus, we get to see exactly how how creative the you know how creative the the cast, the writers, the director are with and I forgot who directed this particular episode. I'll look this up in a second. But seeing how they pulled off this, low budget musical um and the fact that it was even a musical and the fact that this musical was funny and it stood on its own it could stand on its own as a musical which we will talk about here in a second um it it just it was the best of it was the best of the things that they had already been doing well as i mentioned before that the nihilism the narcissism the the um the unhinged rants the disgusting behavior it was all of that, and now we we're moving into a new artistic front that we really hadn't seen in this kind of depth before. Um, was all coming to it was just all coming together in this episode, and I think from you know that for me, like looking back at it, that for me, uh, season four, episode thirteen, is where it kind of crystallizes that this show can be something more than just a kind of. Um, kind of a dark a dark version of Seinfeld um in fact that was like their season two branding was that um it was Seinfeld on crack uh which probably appropriate um in fact they they believe it or not and we'll talk about this they share some themes um but this is where it became more than Seinfeld on crack to me was this sort of this sort of willingness to explore explore in their very own unique grungy lo-fi low-class way how to make something make something that is kind of reserved reserved for um reserved for tv shows with a little more um i guess like a little bit more prestige right like this is something that um an hbo show would do and it would be really it would be you know it would be some it would be a character sort of fantasy or something it'd be really glitzy and glamorous and everything would go off without a hitch um, you know, before the character kind of comes back to earth and like the fantasy's over. And in this case, the fantasy is, as I said before, very lo-fi, low class, kind of shitty. Um, there's, there's, uh, 
there's sexual there's like ridiculous sexual jokes about um you know the waitress um sleeping with a baby boy and uh the troll you know uh, uh frank mispronouncing or not enunciating enough so it sounds like the troll is going to get the boy's hole uh instead of the boy's soul like those kind of those kind of like quote-unquote lowbrow humor jokes filling this kind of very um high school level production of a of a really crappy he a really crappy but good play at the same time um it's just something that just something that they're they did it their way and it was just a signal that they're going to do and they did and they obviously we'll talk about this as well it that to me was the beginning of their like first sort of like we're going to be doing more stuff like this our way and to me that's where this um this show really takes off so <laughs> the nightman cometh if you've never if you if you need a refresher on this episode go back and watch it it's absolutely fantastic top to bottom one of their best episodes all right so what makes it's always sunny in philadelphia worthy of a place in the vault you know like i could have picked a lot of sitcoms that i thoroughly enjoyed seinfeld uh frazier um you can put friends up there fresh prince family matters there's a ton that i could have that i could have picked but i <clears throat> but i think of all those all maybe you know we're obviously letting more than a few things in here but uh you know maybe some of those seinfeld for sure probably would be on the list would be on the short list to be included uh for me at least for um you know, for inclusion in the vault, but for me, Sunny is the Sunny is the is the sitcom to preserve for a multitude of reasons. I'm going to get to three main one three main ones here that I think cover also why I, I put it ahead of some other sitcoms that I really enjoy too. And the first one is the DIY authenticity, um, lo-fi nature of the show. Right. This starts from the very beginning with the theme song, with the Temptation Sensation being a public domain song and thus free. It, it sets a tone that you're going to that you especially the original the original run of episodes, uh, you're going to see something that is visibly cheap, but not but not made without care. You know, um, I think that's the whole like DIY spirit. It's not that like. You know, you're trying to like if you think about like when you're doing something on your own, you know, you're remodeling a bathroom or, um, you know, you're building something for your house, you know, something for your house, you, even something major like a, you know, you're building a deck or something and you're doing it on your own. It's to save money, right? It is to keep the cost down. That's why you're the one doing it. But it doesn't mean that the effort isn't there, that the that the care and craftsmanship isn't there. And that's what I mean by like the DIY authenticity and the lo-fi nature of the show. It's. It is less expensive, but there is, in fact, probably more care and more passion put into the show because it is very much, uh, especially early on, very much all in the hands of Rob, <clears throat> excuse me, of Rob, Glenn, and Charlie. So it, so it starts with a theme song, right? That, that's that's like the, the first step. And even the song itself um, has this sort of, it doesn't really fit with the show necessarily, but it does fit with the show at the same time um it just again feels like something that it just makes sense if you're looking for something free and you're looking for something to be to kind of set your show out as a little bit oddball this is the route you would go so it, it simultaneously does and doesn't fit and again gives it that sort of that sort of feeling like you you've repurposed a piece of wood for another project and you know maybe it doesn't quite look the same as the rest of you know whatever you built but it works, you know, it slots right in there. Um, and that's kind of how I view the, the theme, the, the, excuse me, the theme song. 
Um, and I, and I love that even, you know, even though they have this public domain free, the, this public domain, uh, free use song, uh, again, temptation sensation, um, that they still went ahead and scored the show and the scoring of the show. And we have discussed at length before, so we'll get too far into it. A score is different from a soundtrack. The, the score is different from just a song. Um, it's the music that's going to fill the scene. Um, and, and usually no one is aware of, uh, no one is aware of the score, but someone might be aware of a song or something in a scene. But anyway, um, I love that they do that because they set the precedent with that particular song as the theme song, that then the rest of the, the rest of the episode score has to fit along with it. So there is someone that actually does score the music and kind of keeps it in the same vein and makes it sound, you know, recognizably like Temptation Sensation. And I just, <clears throat> I just love everything about that, how they do that. It's, I think it's fantastic. I even think that the style of camera, camera, you know, camera lenses, lighting, the camera work itself, um, you know, it has all generally stayed the same since 2005. And that gives it this very, again, this very like lo-fi kind of home video look. Like you are, like you and I, you know, had found the best camera we had um, and we're using that instead of, uh, especially in 2005, you know, when, when home video cameras were, um, I mean, I know they still make them, but certainly when they were more of a thing, uh, even, even though, even, you know, the early digital cameras were coming around at that point, but, you know, you still had a lot of VHS cameras. People still had VHS cameras um, at that point in time too, which is an ongoing joke in the show. But there is there is a visible difference when you are using something that is a, uh, a consumer-grade versus something that would, even in 2005, something that would have been used to shoot a TV show is going to shoot a significantly higher quality. And I, I like that despite, as, you know, despite the years moving on, moving onward and their budget getting bigger, they have, generally speaking, have stayed with the same... Uh, the same, the same lenses and the same lighting, the soft lighting to kind of give it this home video look. Um, it definitely has changed. The quality certainly has changed overall. Like it, it, you can't, just the way the cameras advance. Even like the cheapest sort of, you know, even the, even the cheapest sort of, um, uh, almost getting to consumer level uh, grade of, of handheld camera, video camera now is so much clearer than it was in two thousand five. That the picture can't, you know, the, the resolution can't help be can't help but be better than it was tw- almost twenty years ago now. However, they still make sure that it just has a look that signature sunny look to it, no matter what they're actually using to shoot it with. And I, I obviously, and there's there are exceptions to this, and we'll talk about that when we get into uh, into a later part of this uh, outline here. Um, and I and I do love, and I you know, just kind of wrap this thought up about the DIY stuff. I love that the costuming is generally just clothing they own. Um, you know, it's clothing they own. It's uh, to promote brands uh, from friends of theirs that have companies. Uh, it's it's just very. It, it's, I I you know I, I just think it helps sort of sell the, sell the realness of the. You know these absurd kind of surreal characters. It helps sell some realness to know that they're just like these are the clothes they're gonna wear. There's no. I don't know exactly how to explain this one, but it's knowing that there really, there rarely is any costuming, that it is just sort of, they're just wearing their clothes, just kind of, again, feels like if if you and I were, if you and I were shooting a TV show together, you know, maybe we wear something slightly different for the, for the, for the actual show, but it's still going to be our clothes. Like we're not, we're not going to go out and, and, and buy ourselves costumes necessarily, uh, for the, uh, 
for uh, a, you know something that we're shooting on on a micro budget, right? So it, it helps with that vibe as well. Uh, even even getting all the way down to the costuming, it really helps with that vibe as well. I also think that the story, character, and production continuity have earned it a place in the vault too. And what I mean by this is that on all of these fronts, on on the story front, on the characters themselves, and even on um, as I kind of mentioned before, talking about like the cameras and stuff, but like the production, you know, the physical, the physical, how they physically make the show. Um, even though there's development on these fronts, it doesn't break what has been established previously, right? We're just going to kind of grow and develop the idea that we started with. So I kind of broke these, I broke these down into, to give you like two different examples um, for each, uh, for story, character, and production, and what I mean by that. So story. Collectively, they're lower, they're lower middle class, two poor people, and their station in the course of these past 16 seasons has never changed. Um, they they maintain this level, other than Frank, who, you know, kind of <clears throat> kind of exists as um, at least initially like a little bit outside their orbit, but um, is now firmly in their orbit despite being kind of like a secret millionaire. Um, <clears throat> other than Frank, no one's no one's social class has changed. They haven't come up. They haven't gotten better jobs. They haven't. Um, moved up into nicer apartments. Um, everything is exactly the same for them. They are the same people, and realistically speaking, more than likely, this is the this is probably true for most people um, in general, and certainly for most people who would probably be defined as lower middle class or the or the poor class. the The fact is that their lives don't really you don't really move out of that station necessarily. Um, <clears throat> so I think it. It, that adds, you know, certainly a little bit of realism, but it also, like, again, this is just how these, th- these are how, this is what the characters are, you know, this is what D is, this is what Dennis is, this is what Mac is, this is what Charlie is, and they're not going to change from that baseline, even if they do develop and evolve a little bit. Um, another story thing here that I really, really love is that this, and this is actually uh, very much like Seinfeld in this regard, I think I mentioned that before, that they, they took a page from Seinfeld um, even more, even again, even outside of the marketing uh, from season two, calling it Seinfeld on crack, um, they took a page from Seinfeld, uh, from Larry David's kind of rule book for Seinfeld, and they made sure that none of these characters, none of them, learn from their mistakes. They, none of them have ever learned from anything that they've ever done. There is no learning. As Larry David said on Seinfeld, there is no learning. So there certainly is no learning here. Um, when they make a mistake, when they fuck up, they're going. You know that they're going to do something similar and fuck up again, right? Um, they and and this this is from literally every single episode. They fuck up and they don't learn from what they just did, um, or or they or if they do learn something from what they did, they learn the wrong lesson. They pull the wrong thing out from what they did. Um, they don't do things for other people. They they have never once done something for someone else out of you know just be, just because and they've always stayed consistent with that the only time things get done for others is when their you know their goals align right when um, we need to frame somebody for something when we we need to blackmail somebody for something there might be uh, a sort of you know scratch my back I'll scratch yours kind of situation but they don't do things for other people and most importantly, even even more so than the the not learning thing, they are they all they are all in their own way complete narcissists, and they are 
completely unconcerned with anybody but themselves. It does not matter what other people are, even even in their sort of dysfunctional family unit, they don't care about each other. They only care about themselves and how and how they can benefit from how someone else can benefit them. And, you know, that's, again, something that wasn't, I would say this is something that is a little bit less clear from the, from the original episodes, but episode to episode, season to season early on becomes more defined that they are, you know, it, when it went, it went from Dennis being kind of clearly a narcissist to everyone has some kind of shade of narcissist in them. But we're not, <clears throat> but we're, we're going to kind of slowly explore how all of these people are like this. So that's what I mean by story. Those are the, the, the examples that I'll use for story continuity. Um, just everything kind of, everything being, you know, this, the, this kind of at this point now, this 16 year arc that hasn't been broken in terms of the story, in terms of that part of the story. Uh, as far as character goes, uh, I'll give you an example here um, that, we have, I just had mentioned that, you know, Dennis really from the rip is kind of positioned as a bit of a narcissist. You know, he's a little bit aloof. He's cooler than everybody else, whatever. So Dennis starts that way, a little bit narcissistic, maybe a little bit too cool and emotionless. But we naturally take that, that as the baseline. And each season reveals more of his true, it's not just a narcissistic, he's not just a narcissist and loves himself. And thinks of himself as you know better than other people. He is truly a psychopath, um, and we we see these like little reveals. Some of them are funny. Some of them, are, you know, well, I mean, they're all funny, obviously. But some of them are a little bit more serious. Some of them are just very winky and kind of jokey, um, you know. But we see episode to episode, every single season, Dennis growing as a psychopath. You know, whether it's him obsessing over his tools, which are like rope and and gloves and um you know some like uh, some knives and things like that or if it's uh the dentist system right like these are all natural extensions from what was established in episode one that this guy was kind of again an emotion a little bit of emotionless kind of narcissistic uh um womanizing you know just too cool for school kind of guy we have now taken this character and slowly over time have have branched that out into a more into something much darker and sinister while still keeping it funny obviously um and and, and you know here's a second example this is probably the the better the the more obvious example uh mac as a character um you know obviously we season 13 mac kind of officially officially comes out of the closet but it's um you know this is something that's boiling for season to season to season in fact from the very beginning, um, from the very beginning, Mac was uh, questioning sexuality. You know, when they opened the gay bar, his cousin, his his cousins at the gay bar, um, or I shouldn't say when they opened the gay bar, when they turned their bar into a gay bar, and his cousins there, and he's you know says congratulations, you know, kind of like he always knew, and Mac you know kind of brushes it off like no no I'm not gay, um, you know was that it completely intentional? I don't think so. That I I don't think that that was. The complete intent that by, you know, 13 years later, they're going to have, um, you know, actually even longer than, I mean, thir- you know, 13 seasons later or whatever, but like more, more like 16 years later, they're going to have him come out of the closet. I don't think that was the intent necessarily from that very first episode where his cousin talks about him being gay, but it, you know, it's there. And then we kind of progress farther and farther with it. You know, he's, he is messing with Carmen the tranny, um, you know, right, right off the rip. And, you 
she's a recurring character in his life and it just expands more and more and more where you know this where the especially someone who's devoutly catholic it makes very it makes a lot of sense to have this devoutly catholic character who's very much um you know very much in the conservative um ideals camp as far as like social issue social issues go it makes perfect sense to have him kind of struggle with his sexuality season to season to season right it and it's not out of place to have him grow in the way that he's grown while still you know growing as a gay character but also still holding on to like these absolutely inane uh, catholic ideals about you know about um sexuality and everything else so matt you know so dennis and mac i think are two of the best examples of this sort of character continuity um and as far as production continuity I, you know i'd already mentioned previously they you know the way they keep the look right um but there's some other stuff within the production uh that i think are um that are just as just as fantastic and are great touches to everything else that they do so besides the look and like you know the 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 layout of the bar you know the you know the the the, the posters that are on the wall how they sort of change with the times and how certain things stay on the walls um the look of the bar that kind of stuff and as i said before the 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 way the show itself looks one of my favorite little production continuities is the vhs tape that they literally have been recording on since 2005 um or actually it's possibly 2006 it might be in the second season they start using the vhs tape but i think i feel like there's an episode in 2005 where they have the vhs tape but it's the same vhs tape they clearly they have the one handheld cam that took the the you know the big clunky plastic vhs tape um young people out there probably have no idea what i'm talking about um but once upon a time uh, we used to use these big we used to essentially have uh we used to essentially have handheld vcrs that had a lens on them was essentially what a, a home camera was at that point in time but they have the same vhs tape since 2005 that they continuously record over and over and over and they and, and instead of obviously just buying a new tape or in you know in the case of the later seasons buying a digital camera they keep the same tape and just tape over it and you can see the bits and pieces of previous seasons when they were recording stuff appear throughout this tape even as late as like season like 12 or 13 there are bits from this original tape that are still um, on the tape that they're recording over it's like when they're recording i you know i just close that just close that uh the window for imdb but um when we get to like the um uh fight milk uh you know the ufc episodes and the recording a commercial stuff from like season two and three is visible in the tape and it's just something that they i'm so it's it's one of those like little touches that when you are when you are like a super fan like me it just delights you to see something like that pop up on their uh on their on the vhs tape that they refuse absolutely refuse to replace or um you know upgrade uh, another production thing that I love that again this is actually something that went that got past me as a super fan and that is Charlie has had the same bad new and I'm saying that correctly bad new tattoo on his arm since season two um it's obviously not visible in every single episode but when when there is an episode where he is wearing and he does obviously doesn't have this tattoo in real life uh Charlie Charlie Day does not have this tattoo in real life so whenever there's an, uh, an episode uh, or scenes within an episode 
where he's going to be in short sleeves or shirtless or something, they reapply the same bad new tattoo in the same spot on his forearm. Um, and it literally is there. If there's an episode between, I can't remember which episode it is in season two, but um, th- it's when they're going to try to impress Mac's dad who's in prison. And um, I'm pretty sure Frank kind of, it's either Frank or Dennis kind of breaks up um, him self-tattooing himself. It is there. It is visible in every single episode in which he might be wearing short sleeves. And I, I just find that it's just fantastic. That attention to detail um, that on other shows, and you know, I don't, I don't mean this as like a knock on other shows. Other shows would just not worry about this detail because quite frankly, no one would notice otherwise. Or, you know, very few people would notice and the ones that do notice, it's not like they care anyway. But they made sure that Charlie still has the bad new tattoo on his arm. And, you know, there's another one here, similar kind of idea. Um, and it's a little bit easier to do this with uh, Cricket since he's not in, uh, since Hornsby, David Hornsby isn't in every single episode like uh, like Charlie. But every time we see Cricket, he has some kind of new injury or new malady. And it carries over from one appearance to the next, right? Like he um, he has like this very pronounced wound on his neck that Frank gave him when, he, when they wrestled for the troops. Uh, and so every time we see him, he, you know, he looks worse and worse. Obviously he's a crack addict, drug addict, um, an alcoholic and everything else. But we see that neck tattoo get worse and worse, or the neck tattoo, excuse me, that neck wound get worse and worse. Uh, I know he injures his eye. I can't remember exactly how he injures his eye, um, or he gets something spilled in his eye or, or spit in his eye or whatever. I can't remember exactly what it is, but, um, you know, and then his eye is just like an infected pussy mess. And he has scarring over it. So like every time Cricket appears, he looks worse and worse. But the the previous, some kind of previous injury, some kind of previous malady is visible on his face uh, every single season. Which is, every single appearance I should say. Which is again just another stroke of genius uh, as far as keeping continuity goes. And I think the last thing that cements uh, Sonny as uh, vault worthy. And you know the most, to me the most vault worthy sitcom of all time is, in fact, this complete subversion of TV tropes. Um, These are villains. You are not supposed to be cheering for them. There aren't very many, and I I really think it's in Sonny's wake that you have several of these TV shows pop up where the main characters are clearly not not just like morally gray or... Um, anti-heroes or, you know, like, a, you know, do they do some questionable things sometimes. These these characters are just straight up putrid villains and you're not supposed to be cheering for them. And I, again, I, I think this, I'm not saying that this set the tone, set the trend, but it does seem like post-2005, we have more shows where the central characters are villains. But, pre, but prior to this, there never, ever would have been a sitcom on TV where you would actively not where you were where you were invited into this bizarre world where you are actively not supposed to be cheering for the main characters like there that never would have happened prior to this show for certain to be sure and i i just i love that like i love that we are not going to pretend like our characters are the you know, and it's not. I'm not saying that previous sitcoms didn't deal with gray era, gray area, and moral issues and stuff like that. But you know, and and you know, the, the those other characters, you know, frequently, time and again, came on, 
didn't always fall on the right side necessarily. Um, but this is so clearly they start on the wrong side of something usually, and then just double down and dig themselves further into the wrong side. There is just no way there would have been a TV show like this prior. Um, and, and, you know, kind of in its wake, it's obvious when other TV shows are kind of doing the same thing now in its wake, you know, having, having this much of a body of work, you, you just have to say, you know, you, there is nothing else to compare it to other than, um, other than the, you know, it doesn't matter what the show is. If it's got a shitty kind of main character, it's going to be held up right against Sonny, uh, because they kind of, again, I'm not saying they are the first necessarily, but certainly they're the most notable example of, of this kind of show. Um, so kind of piggybacking off that, um, you know, these characters don't get to have happy endings. No one. In fact, no one gets a happy ending. It doesn't even like even when they get their comeuppance, it's not usually in, in victory for, um, you know, whether it's a side character that they're that they've been um, unintentionally torturing for an entire episode. Like the waiter at um, I think the the restaurant seems like Marconi's um, like even when they kind of get their comeuppance, it's not like the waiter gets to enjoy it, right? Like, no one in this show really gets a happy ending. Everyone kind of gets just desserts, but there's no, uh, you know, there's, but it's not like there's any sort of restitution for their, for their antics and their behavior. It just sort of is, everyone gets pulled down with them. Everyone suffers. They might suffer worse, and usually they do suffer worse, but everyone is suffering right along with them. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, no one learns anything, taking a page right out of Seinfeld. Uh, something that I really loved that uh, that McElhenney kind of insisted on, and he went, he really went into with um, the characters look worse, not better. Uh, as I mentioned before, Ricky, Rickety Cricket is like a very obvious example. He always looks worse. You know, he started as this, uh, started as a priest, this like very clean cut priest. Uh, and now he's just this uh, detestable drug addict uh, living on the streets. But, you know, uh, Rob McElhenney g- gaining a lot of weight to, uh, to, to play Mac, to play Fat Mac. Um, <clears throat> the sort of playing with, like, just how kind of crappy they look as, uh, as people who are aging not gracefully. Uh, I, know, I know there's an episode where, like, Dennis, like, his, his, like, makeup comes off or something. And, like, he looks, like, skeletal and just terrible. Um, I, I just love that they're – we're not, like – you know, as, as the show gets more popular, um, we are not kind of leaning into this like popularity and making them necessarily look better. We are making them look the same or worse. And it's, you know, it's just great. It's just great that we are, we are going against that sort of like people becoming hotter, um, the longer that they're on TV. And I, I like that. I like that. This is like, like every sitcom, this is a, this, there is a family unit at the center of it. Right. But again, like a perverted kind of literally a perverted family in this case where they really don't come together as a family unit unless they're again, like they're, um, you know, there's something to be gained from kind of aligning yourself with someone else. So if Mac, if Mac and Charlie have common ground, they're kind of going to team up. If three or four of the characters have common ground, you know, maybe against Frank or against someone else, they team up. But they're they're not a family unit unless there is some kind of target or there is some kind of mutual benefit to being a family unit, right? Whereas in other sitcoms, like the 
the main cast, whether it is an actual family or whether it's something like Seinfeld, like it's a group of friends, uh, whatever that family unit is in traditional sitcoms, they're kind of like, it's like they got, they got each other's back. They, they're always going to be on each other's side. They're always going to help each other out, blah, blah, blah. They do not in this show. Uh, they do not help each other out. They do not have each other's backs. They will stab each other in the back. They will double cross each other. There's a whole episode about them double crossing each other and how Mac does not understand what double crossing and, um, and, you know, being a double secret agent, he doesn't understand like what that means. Um, but you know, he's trying to align himself the entire episode with the more positive outcome for him. And it's, it's, you know, just like one of those like signal episodes that like, yeah, yeah, we know what we're doing. <laughs> like, this is very much on purpose that we're, we, we are writing the show like this. And we're going to, we're going to make sure that you know it by, we're going to write an entire episode where allegiances shift left to right. And we're going to have one character just shift just as quickly with them. So I, I love that subversion of, of that, of that TV trope here. And then, as I mentioned before, I, I, I guess I've kind of, kind of wandered into this too, a little bit too early but you know there there very often isn't a lesson to be learned right like we already know the stuff that they're going to get themselves into is already bad um or stupid or the benefits are minimal it's already like there's no lesson to be learned here we're just going to watch the dumb stupid people get punished for making the dumb stupid decision or if there is a lesson you know it's we're going to skewer it like a little bit um but either way nothing is going to be learned regardless right that's that is you know i think i think when you're writing a a tv show that's heavy with satire you there's just no way you can have your characters learn from their mistakes and take too many maybe they can learn one or two lessons but they can't take many lessons with them otherwise you're going to run very low on stuff that you can uh, satirize all right so we have a whole section here that it kind of it, it works better with uh, works better with the movies when we're talking about them um, about kind of like a, a performance that best define, like the question here that I asked was, is there a performance that best defines the show for you? And I think it's really difficult to kind of pick one performance that defines the show simply because again, there's 170 some episodes, 16 years, the performances are different, you know, year 16 than they were from year one. So I, I think it's kind of impossible to, to pick one performance or even an even one episode that kind of accurately defines the show so what i did here and we're going to get into we're going to get into the thickets here we're getting real into the brush um we're going to get into uh all right excuse me excuse me i should say we're going to break this down uh by what i'm calling the three eras of sunny um and it actually will kind of i think help prove the point that I made earlier about uh, the Nightman Cometh kind of being this like jumping off point where things change for the series entirely. Um, but the three eras of Sunny is how I'm going to break this down. And I'll give you the kind of overview of this right here. So the first era of Sunny is called the Teething Era. Uh, this is seasons one through four. In the Teething Era, they're figuring out in very small ways who the characters are and how they will relate to each other. Right. Like we're, and this is, this is basically every TV show, this, you know, especially one that has a much shorter um, episode order than, you know, sit other kind of more traditional sitcoms at the time that we're getting, you know, between 16 and 22 episodes a season, 
Sunny got seven its first season. Um, then it gets goes to ten, and it balloons a little bit after that before kind of getting back down to their typical ten episode seasons. So, in a much shorter window, <clears throat> excuse me, in a much shorter window, and also really on less stable ground than a network TV show, a network sitcom, uh, they had to figure out things much quicker in this time period. Um, but, <clears throat> but obviously they do. But this is where they are. This is where they are kind of, you know, as I said, figuring out who the characters are um, and how they're going to kind of relate to each other. But also they're testing storytelling boundaries as well. Um, They're testing the kind of general sitcom etiquette. Like what can you what can you talk about? What can't you talk about uh, in a sitcom? Um, You know, how how can we tell a story about how can we tell, you know, like just thinking an example of uh, from like the gang gives back. Where, um, you know, we're, we're, we're having this whole story about, like, uh, this whole story about, like, you know, Dennis being kind of, everyone kind of being quietly racist about, like, the black kids on their basketball team. Uh, you know, Frank um, corrupting the sport with gambling and bribing players. Like, how can we tell that story without, you know, with being offensive enough to kind of make it shockingly funny but not crossing too many lines? Um, so they were testing those kind of boundaries, uh, in seasons one through four as well. So that's the, and I'm going to get into some specific episodes here. Uh, I'm going to circle back into some specific episodes here after I lay all this out, but that's the teething era. That's seasons one through four. Then we have the classic era. This is seasons five through 11. Um, this is when the characters finally have very distinct lanes. Uh, now we have figured out the characters and we know how we're going to position them in, in any kind of episode. How are they going to be positioned in a story? And obviously that, that's the general rule. You could have, um, you know, someone kind of flip and do something unexpected. But generally speaking, we now have their sort of, we have the characters figured out. Here's how they're going to, this is the position they're going to take in an episode. It's much easier to, I shouldn't say it's much easier, but it's easier to write any kind of story once you have character motivations and expectations for characters kind of figured out so we're, we're at that point um and this obviously enables them to grow their eccentricities and to bring out their flaws in more in kind of unique ways um right like now that we ha- now that we figured this out how can we how can we kind of add a layer to it how can we add a layer to as i, as I mentioned before talking about dennis um you know starting as a narcissist but now basically being like a full-blown psychopath how in this time period they're figuring out okay so where where when and how do we layer on this piece of the puzzle to show people that Dennis isn't just kind of a isn't just kind of you know a, a, a little snooty and stuck up that also by the way he might have killed somebody um and it's just a little piece here a little piece there and it's just much easier to do again once you have figured out where that character is going in, in a very general sense um, I call this the classic era because this is also when you think about a quote, a scene, an episode, a meme, it's very likely from this era uh, of, of, of the, of the, of the show. It's very likely from seasons five to 11. Um, in fact, they, this is, I, I have like a list here of particular episodes and it's a, it's a murderer's row of high quality episodes. So if there's something that you remember or you kind of identify with the show in particular, it's probably from seasons five through 11. So that's what we're calling this one, the classic era. 
And then finally, seasons 12 through 16, or you could just say seasons 12 through the present, um, it's going to go at least 18 seasons. So, um, you know, whatever. We'll see if this – I guess I'll have to see if the last couple seasons change anything from my uh, thesis here. But uh, seasons 12 through 16, this is the Expressionist era. And in this case, we are um, – we're getting treated to more outside of the box episodes. Um, we are, they are frequently, uh, they're frequently creating more kind of surreal situations or hyper realities for individual episodes, right? Like um, there, there are a lot of kind of fantasy episodes. Um, there are episodes that, you know, are take, taking place inside of dreams and stuff like that. There's um, episodes with whole, uh, you know episodes with interpretive dance and stuff like that so we are we are really getting into this idea that like we are going to express more ideas about the characters certainly but also the um you know the actors and, and writers themselves kind of diving into um diving into more um diving into more metaphor for how they how they maybe view parts of themselves so that's when we're getting into that's what we call this the expressionist era um but we also have other stuff too that kind of that kind of has changed that changes the formula a little bit from the previous 11 seasons we have more storylines that arc between multiple episodes um you know whether they whether they're individual storylines that you know start in one episode finish four or five episodes later or if it's literally just kind of an ongoing thing that just continues for several episodes we have a little bit more of that they play with the sitcom format itself Right. Like we have we have episodes that are um, that are um, designed to look like designed to look like uh, film noir episodes or we have long shot. We have we have a sitcom episode that has a 13 minute long shot, um, a single shot, I should say, excuse me, um, where even making commentary on the, the the sitcom format itself with episodes. So we are getting into we're definitely playing with more stuff. That actually, that actually really used to happen quite a bit more um, in in the in, back in the golden era of of sitcoms, and certainly just with um, back in the era of TV, where you had bigger episode orders in general. And what I mean by that, you had you know if you're someone who like regularly watched the X Files, or you regularly watched Lost or um, Star Trek or something like that. You know, those those shows had so many episodes per season. Um, you know, X-Files and Star Trek had like 20 some, 25 episodes per season, which is ludicrous that, you know, something would be on for half the year. But nonetheless, nonetheless it was. However, when you have that many episodes, you can't just like pound the same storylines over and over again. That's where you get some of the, and in my opinion, some of like, I'll just stick with the X-Files here. Some of the best X-Files episodes are these very unique one-off episodes where they're very they're very humorous where we have like i want to say like ed asner is a um ed asner and oh gosh i can't remember i cannot remember who else plays this other ghost but ed asner is one of the ghosts and it's 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 very funny it's such a funny episode um so you had those like comedy episodes you had um you had some really super serious hyper violent episodes like um like home Maybe one, maybe the most infamous episode, maybe maybe the most infamous episode of X Files of all time, um, and even even in terms of like the grotesqueness of uh, even you know of like alien abductions and people 
mutant people and other stuff like that, home was especially dark and especially scary. And it's because they had the writers and the showrunner and the directors had so much more time to play with the format that they opted to do those kind of episodes because they could, you can't just make 25 straightforward episodes that have like, uh, that are all the same. You need to kind of break it up with something different every now and then. And in this time period of Sonny, getting back, rounding all back, I'm bringing it back, baby. Getting back to this era, the expressionist era of Sonny, we have episodes that are very much like that, that are, we are just going to play with the format, do something unusual, um, you know, in their own Sonny way. But that's how they're going to, you know, that's how they're going to, to play with the format, basically. But it, fantastic. Um, and I will say, because we are doing, because the expression, the expressionist era is kind of doing things farther outside of the box than they had ever before. It means that with some of these bigger swings, they have bigger hits and they have bigger misses to be, to be certain. There are definitely some misses in these later seasons. It doesn't mean the episode's bad. It just means you can, you can tell that what they were going for, it just didn't hit. It just didn't quite find, find or stick the landing. And when you compare when you compare the classic era to the expressionist era, I I, I I'll double check on this, but here in a second, um, well I'll stop the recording to make, to double check it, but I want to say that there's like one or two episodes throughout throughout the entire six season run of or I should say is it seven seasons five six seven eight nine ten eleven the entire seven seasons that encom- that uh, that encompass the 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 classic era seasons five through eleven i think you can count like two or three misses and obviously this is subjective but legitimately i think you're you that's about as high as you're going to get on the miscount where uh, i think when you get to the expression the expressionist era there's one or two episodes certainly one episode i would say that misses in every season it just doesn't quite get to what they wanted it to be it doesn't mean it wasn't funny it just means that if you were to kind of rank you know, if you were to rank all those episodes in every in all those seasons, you would probably see them mo- probably more than likely. Everyone would rank those more towards the bottom or the middle at best. So that's what I mean by kind of bigger swings and misses when we get to the expressionist era. Okay, so let's circle back here and talk about some episodes from each of these eras, and kind of if there's something real important uh, in them, I'll kind of stop and and point out like exactly like kind of what it means for um, for this particular era of the show. So starting off, the, and these are I'm not going episode to episode. I'm just going to name some notable ones from from the era. So, um, <clears throat> Charlie wants an abortion from season one. Uh, fantastic episode wherein we get even though even though it's like the second episode of the season, and even though uh, we're very well aware that Charlie's kind of the um, the well-meaning one of the group, he is still not above doing something disgusting to to get what he wants in this case you know he wants to connect with the waitress who's who he's had a crush on forever um so he you know when there's this unfortunate sort of situation where a woman uh pretends you know pretends that her son is in fact charlie's kid uh he uses the he uses that as an opportunity to um convince the waitress that he's also uh involved with the big sisters little sisters program and he tries to um you know tries to tries to kind of underhandedly get some uh, FaceTime with the waitress and, and connect with her on that level. Uh, and of course it blows up in his face and he gives the fantastic line that I, I still love to this day. It's one of my favorite lines. 
uh, when the kid's mouthing off to him and he goes, I will smash your face into a jelly. It's, I don't know what 100% what it means, but I also 100% know what it means. And I'm not even doing the line justice, uh, but it's one of my favorite Charlie lines of all time. Uh, Charlie got molested, the season one finale, uh, wherein, wherein the, I believe this is the first time we meet the McPoyles, and um, they they concoct a story where their coach, uh, who was the principal from uh, Saved by the Bell, they concoct a story that the coach uh, was molesting them and that... Uh, <clears throat> that Charlie was uh, molested as well. And it leads to this whole like traumatic sort of situation for him and uh, Dennis and D trying to help, trying to quote unquote, help him out with their, uh, with their limited psychology, psychology knowledge. Um, and it just sort of ends with this whole thing, this whole bizarre situation where Charlie and his entire family are there and his creepy uncle Frank is, or, um, not uncle Frank. Um, oh, God damn. Why am I forgetting his name right now? Uncle Jack, excuse me, Uncle Jack, where creepy Uncle Jack is there, uh, who becomes a great character in the show. Um, and it, it's, it's, it ends with that, you know, show me on the doll where, where the, where the coach touched you. It is hysterical. It is, it is, it is black, dark humor at its best. Uh, from season two, Dennis and Dee go on welfare. Um, one of the best scenes of all time is from this episode, from this season, uh, where they're, uh, they're sitting out on the porch listening to Biz Marquee while they drink and uh, become addicted to crack. A fantastic episode. $100 Baby, the riff, obviously on Million Dollar Baby, where uh, D trains with Frank to, uh, to box. Uh, Charlie gets into underground fighting, and they both get uh, hooked on amphetamines, and they beat, up, they beat some guy half to death uh, out, out in front of the bar. Um, the gang gets invincible. They're trip into one of the one of their many forays uh into sports in this episode in the in the seasons uh this one with the philadelphia eagles um uh, it, it, we get introduced to donovan mcnab quote unquote it's just a guy that they it's clearly not donovan mcnab who they hire to come uh talk to the talk to the potential walk-ons uh for the philadelphia eagles and this is of course most importantly the first appearance of charlie's iconic classic alter ego green man um just he's high on acid uh he's even kind of talking through it he's hanging out with mcpoils and he you look over and he is in this completely green suit just head to toe just bright green suit just dancing around like an idiot with uh with all the mcpoils uh so the gang gets invincible absolutely absolutely fantastic episode uh sweet d's dating a retarded person where sweet d is dating not a retarded person. Uh, she is dating the kind of the, the local Philadelphia's version of Eminem. He's not quite uh, on the come up yet, but he's, you know, he's putting together an album. He's going to be kind of like the next big thing. Um, so uh, it, it ends with a great rap with Lil Kev um, just absolutely busting, uh, busting um, Sweet D because she thinks, again, she thinks that he's retarded. Uh, bust the guys uh, and just totally like clowns on and a really good rap. But more importantly, this is also the first iteration of of Dayman and Nightman uh, in in Charlie's apartment, uh, where uh, he and he and uh, uh, he and Dennis decide to form a kind of a, a Bowie esque kind of seventies glam rock sexual rock band, um, and their song is the first iteration of Nightman uh, slash Dayman. 
Um, we also have in this early in this early part, um, the gang dances their asses off. Just not not that this is like a um, kind of a transcendent in terms of like its meaning or, or quality or any, or not in terms of meaning, but in terms of its quality, this is one of my favorite episodes where the gang has various dance offs. Uh, they host a dance-a-thon to save the bar, and they have all these sort of they do these all these underhanded tactics to try to win it, or they um, they have some of these iconic dances moments. It's it's just a great episode. It's packed wall to wall with stuff going on um some of the classic sort of backstabbing and betrayal happens in this episode it's absolutely absolutely fantastic uh also from this era mac and dennis manhunters one of my favorites where we kind of get into an early step into kind of the um uh, an early step into uh what would kind of become like more of a classic era episode um we're doing something a little bit different but a little bit different from from previous seasons previous episodes where Mac and Dennis are um, doing a riff on, well, Frank is doing a 100% direct riff on Rambo, and Mac and Dennis are out hunting, um, hunting Rickety Cricket down, but they're not like as prepared because Rickety Cricket's been living on the streets now for years. They're not prepared for how how adapted life on the streets and life on the run uh, Rickety Cricket already is, and of course, this is the episode where. Charlie and Sweet D also get uh, addicted to, but as they think, they potentially get addicted to eating human flesh, and they have to go back for one more bite of human flesh. Uh, we also have uh, Who Pooped the Bed, just a goofball episode where everyone, everyone, you know, regular cast, regular extra, you know, regular recurring uh, cast members, uh, and just other people try to analyze a turd that someone left in charlie and frank's bed and all in the end it's just frank shit in the bed because he thinks it's funny and and it is funny and it's disgusting it's stupid it's funny it's just a great sort of again kind of playing with playing with the um playing with the sitcom sort of setup in general and pushing the boundaries of what is a sitcom this is like one of their first forays into that uh but sweet d has a heart attack um, well, Sweetie has a heart attack. Uh, so she and Dennis kind of try to figure out how to live a healthier lifestyle. Uh, and this is the episode where Charlie and Mac both join, uh, they both take the same job essentially and split it a half to get health insurance. And this is, this is where the, maybe the most famous sunny meme of all time occurs where Charlie has a nervous breakdown in the mail room and he's convinced that someone named Pepe Silvia is like part of a shell corporation and some kind of mass conspiracy fraud cover up, um, and he's got the the classic um, detective yarn board going with Pepe Silvia, and he's he's his eyes are bugging out. Um, you know the meme. Uh, it's it's one of the famous one of the most famous of all time, and that's where uh, that's where this that that's where that meme ep- originates inside of this episode. Sweet D has a heart attack, and then of course to kind of wrap up the teething era is the episode that I already talked about uh, at length, The Nightman Cometh. They're, to me, sort of truly signaling the end of them figuring things out, um, them figuring the characters out, and this is like sort of the break wall for when we get into the classic era, is The Nightman Cometh. You could almost consider The Nightman Cometh the first episode of the classic era. Um, it fits right in. It has all the hallmarks of a classic sunny episode between visuals, one-liners, um, 
setup, premise, ex- everything. This is this is I th- this is I think it's if it's not my f- I think it's probably probably my second favorite episode is the Nightman Cometh. We'll talk about my fa- favorite episode here in a little bit, but um, the Nightman Cometh uh, definitely this is sort of the the benchmark from when from when uh, when you go forward through the classic era. I'm not going to say that there weren't worse episodes than this, but we're not talking about episodes that really slide in quality from this point, uh, from this point forward. Uh, the Nightman Cometh really changes things for, for the series altogether. And that's it. That is the teething era. Uh, those are some of the most notable episodes from the teething era seasons one through four. All right. So let's dive into the classic era and, this is this is what I mean when I say this is we we really truly enter kind of a new phase for Sonny. Season five is almost top to bottom, wall to wall, absolute bangers left and right. I mean, legitimately. Um, just so, here, I'm I'm going to go through. I'm just going to go through season five and give you the episode list. So we start out with a fun one, a a classic one here. Uh, the gangs the gang exploits the mortgage crisis. We got Vic Vinegar. We got Hugh Honey doing some uh, doing some real estate, dirty real estate dealings. It's a very funny episode. Um, I, I would say it's a it's a great sort of it's a funny episode and a great way to kind of tee up all the stuff that is better to come. Uh, so the second up ep- the second episode of the season, the gang hits the road. Um, this is where uh, Dennis they're they're going to go drive out to the Grand Canyon. Uh, we have the um, uh, you know the uh, Dennis's Range Rover gets fucked up, so they take Dee's car, um, and thus forcing force her to go with them. Um, they this is where you get the scene where they're playing name the states, and you get you get uh, West Virginia, East Virginia, South Virginia, North Virginia uh, during that game. Uh, they're Charlie and Dennis sitting in the back of the trailer trying to figure out how to breathe. Uh, so like they tape it open, they try cooking uh, in there, which is a disaster. We have them stop at the market uh, where Charlie eats like the whole, the entire pear seed stem and uh, and the sticker and we get the line with you know the Charlie line I eat stickers all the time dude um, fantastic episode ends with them not leaving Philly uh, and the the kid the the drifter that they pick up the kid stealing uh stealing Dee's car and taking off with it uh, that's the second episode of the season the third episode of the season the Great Recession where um, where Frank starts starts the episode by trying to hang himself. Then we get, um, you know, Dee and Charlie get uh, fired. There's the there's uh, Charlie living down uh, living down by the Delaware River, cra- you know, pulling these nasty crabs up. Before uh, Frank finally gets a uh, Frank finally gets a bailout from the bank. Um, the Great Rece- Recession, fantastic episode as well. Uh, then we get to an all time classic episode. The gang gives Frank an intervention where Frank is just off the rails uh, drunk the entire episode. Um, we get the the first mention of Nightcrawlers in this episode. We get the, um, you know, Mac being creepy with uh, uh, with um, Dennis's mom, uh, you know, trying to t- trying to woo her again. Um, what else do we have? We have the, oh, the, the great scene with Frank and, and, uh, and Mac walking down the street. Frank's just gargling beer kind of incoherently. Um, we have Gale the Snail, uh, and then we actually do finish with, an, uh, we have, oh, the drinking the wine out of the can, which I swear to God, uh, the, there's like, um, 
they're like they're canned wines now um and i think some of them like one of them's like man can or something like that i i swear to god they came those started to appear after this episode so uh, a couple years after this episode so did sunny did sunny uh give the canon can uh canned wine industry a boost it's very possible but it does end with them actually having intervention and frank thinking it's a roast and one of the great sort of <clears throat> one of the great sort of uh you no, know, not like not a crass line, just a really funny line, where the uh, intervention specialist, the, the therapist, um, you know, kind of gives him the typical opening line, like you know, Frank, we're all here because we love you. We're here because we're worried about you, um, and you know, we just and now we're gonna, you know, all your friends are here because they, your friends and family are here because they want to tell you how they feel and how your drinking has affected your life. And he just kind of looks puzzled, looks over her and goes, "She ain't funny." Next, and just like. He's just rolling with it, um, you know, just rolling with it. It, it. Just top to bottom, Frank just going off this rails, off the rails in this episode. It's hilarious. The oh, uh, <clears throat> this is also Frank's kind of first, um, the first kind of foray with him just kind of holding a pistol at all times. Is also in this episode. Uh, the first mention of Nightcrawlers. It's this. This is a classic episode, top to bottom. Uh, that's the gang gives Frank intervention. Uh, then we get to the waitresses getting married, where we have probably the most iconic one. The most iconic scene from this is Charlie's dating profile where they're putting it together, and he's telling about uh, telling them his likes and dislikes, little green ghouls, people's knees, milk steak, all that stuff. Then we get to the World Series defense, where they're fighting a, a ticket in court, and they're giving their reasons why they accumulated something like thirteen hundred dollars worth of tickets because they're they never came back to pick up their car. And it gets into the everything that happened uh, during that rain delay during the World Series. Uh, they got stuck um, under the under the Holiday Inn or the Holiday Inn, as they call it, uh, since they can't actually call it the Holiday Inn. Um, <clears throat> this is where we have the letter to Chase Utley. We get uh, we get a recurrence of Green Man and the the Philly frenetic, not the fanatic, the Philly frenetic, and Green Man getting into a fight, and the two dudes going to beat up charlie because they're not sure if it's a hate crime or not uh, i can't remember what episode they were in previously but i think it's the i think it had to be one of the episodes with carmen the tranny uh where mac hits her and they they said dude is that a hate crime and they beat mac up uh, but they're back great episode like, again classic episode the gang wrestles for the troops uh we get introduced to the maniac played by the, the late great rowdy rowdy piper uh we get ben the soldier who is always he's hysterical whenever he's on um we get and this obviously we get uh this is the kind of the first serious injury to cricket and and then we also get the um uh, oh god the uh what do they call themselves the the uh birds of war um mac charlie and dennis are birds of war as like their their wrestling personas it is again classic episode um again then it gets followed up with uh, i think an even more classic episode um Episode eight, Patty's Pub, home of the original kitten mittens, where we meet, uh, where we, I think this is where we first meet the lawyer. Oh no, this is, I'm sorry, this is our third time meeting the lawyer, but the first time he actually gets paid by them, um, where Charlie hits it big with his idea, these, these stupid, kitschy little kitten mittens, uh, and everyone else has, everyone else has ideas for this, uh, this like merchandising convention in, in, in Philly where, uh. Uh, what do they? They have a bunch of merchandise for Patty's Pub. The uh, the the shotgun or the gunshot, excuse me, where the it's gonna blast a uh, it's gonna blast a shot of liquor into your mouth. 
the the egg, the patty stress ball, which is just an egg. Um, and this is also where some of the stuff where we begin to see the stuff from the VHS tape finally start to get recycled, um, pops up in this episode and stuff from this episode pops up again as in later episodes as the tape is the VHS tape continues to get recycled. Um, and then we get to, Oh boy. Um, again, like I said, this is like a murderer's row season. Mac and Dennis break up. Uh, this is where they, they annoy Mac and Dennis spend time away from each other and they annoy the piss out of everybody else, um, you, you know, with their kind of uh, their eccentricities, kind of that Mac and Dennis are totally fine with, but everyone else is just this can't take. Um, and so, like we, everyone kind of gets fractured when their relationship gets fractured. D has to get them back together, and we also get the whole cat in the wall situation, uh, where eventually we have like ten cats inside of uh, inside of D's apartment wall, and then we get to this is maybe my man. I, I don't know this. Maybe my third favorite episode, actually. Um, we get to the Dennis system, where Dennis gives his foolproof plan for picking up chicks, and uh, it's in great detail how he, it's just psychological manipula- manipulation, uh, emotional manipulation, abuse. Like essentially, he he traps these women in a in an abusive, in a in a, in a mentally abusive relationship, and then leaves them. And then, as it turns out, everyone else has an accompanying system uh, to pick up all the scraps that um, the, that Dennis leaves behind. And the woman of Dennis's, uh, I, I love this part, the woman uh, who is like Dennis's object of desire uh, throughout the whole Dennis system is, in fact, his wife, um, real life wife, who uh, I don't believe she acts anymore. I think she uh, just does like production stuff now. Um, and then we finish off with a couple of very solid episodes uh, Mac and Charlie write a movie uh, where there's an M. Night Shyamalan production in town and their cast is extras. Um, and there's this whole, uh, you know, this kind of uh, blasé attitude that Dennis is this Dennis is giving everybody as he writes the movie. And then uh, we also have like the the um, this idea. The, oh, uh, Mac and uh, or excuse me, Charlie and uh, Charlie and Mac's movie is like this sort of bizarre um this bizarre um, kind of, um, I, I guess it. I, I think it's like a. I think it's like a takeoff of Thundergun. I can't remember if we talk about Thundergun already at this point or not. But, um, but their movie stars Dolph Lundgren is like this. Oh, it, it's sorry, it's not a takeoff of Thundergun. It's just their obsession with Dolph Lundgren, um, where like Dolph Lundgren plays a cop who can smell crime, um, and he just like bangs everyone constantly. It's it's hysterical, and then we finish off with the gang reigniting the rivalry. Um, where uh, they their tenure ban from Philadelphia is over, and they go to the old bar that they used to have a rivalry with, and try to start it back up, and it's of course just disastrous for them. But that's I just listed just season five. Um, this is wall to wall hits in season five, obviously highlighted by the Dennis system, kitten mittens, and then I would probably say um, Frank gets an intervention as kind of the highlights for me. But you can't pick an episode in this season and go wrong with it. That's for sure. Uh, so I will get I will get to some other ones that that came here. So I'll get through these quickly, uh, and then we go in later in, in episodes that are not from season five. We get uh, the gang buys a boat, where we have the um, as the uh, the boat seller uh, puts it very well. Um, we they want a P Diddy style shrimping boat, and they get this kind of cruddy houseboat um we get d dancing with the um 
dancing with the floating the the waving arm inflatable flailing man from like car dealerships and she like exactly is matching the dance moves um and this is uh, this is one of my favorite episodes for the this continuing idea of the implication and this god i love this so much this is where we first dennis mentions the implication of why women won't turn you down on on a boat out in the open water because of the implication that something could go wrong but it won't they're really safe and and rightfully uh you know this is such a great line because it's just so fucking creepy and funny it is so it's so revealing as to what mac is really like and uh, excuse me what dennis is really like and Mac's sort of puzzlement at why he's, you know, Mac Mac just doesn't get it because to a normal person this sounds very creepy, and um, as even though Mac's not exactly normal, he's normal enough to understand that like, no, that's not a good thing to sort of trap women against their will or at least give them the idea that they don't have complete free will. Um, one of the best lines, maybe. Maybe one of the four or five best lines in this in the entire in the entire series comes out of this episode with the implication. Who got the pregnant? Uh, where they got to put the puzzle together uh, drunkenly over their uh, over the Halloween party. Um, the gang gets stranded in the woods, <clears throat> where uh, Charlie and uh, Charlie and Dennis, you know, just kind of decide to hoof it to this. Um, I believe it's like I believe it's some kind of animal um, preservation society thing. Where they meet uh, Ryan Howard and Chase Utley, uh, they're on like a private plane, and uh, one of the, one of my favorite encounters where they meet the uh, the late Tom Sizemore. Uh, I can't remember his character's name, but he's the trucker, and he's trying not to be gay anymore, and he just says, "That's it, boys. I can't take it anymore. I want you two to split me like a coconut." Um, it's I'm not even doing I'm not doing that line justice, but Tom Sizemore's bit in this episode is so fucking good, so fucking good. Um, a very sunny Christmas. Uh, it's it's just a great episode, top to bottom. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of f bombs uh, where Charlie where Charlie berates the mall Santa and bites like his nose off, um, screaming at him, "Did you fuck my mom?" Is I, I mean, it's just it's just an un- it, even for this show it was like a kind of an unbelievable moment. It was fantastic though. Uh, let's see what else we have here. We have the gang goes to Jersey Shore, where Dennis and uh, Dennis and D get. You know their their dreams were are completely in their hopes and dreams for the Jersey Jersey Shore being like it was when they were kids are completely flipped. They they find homeless men having sex under the boardwalk. D gets her hair ripped out. They get kidnapped and forced to rob uh, rob convenience stores. Whereas um, uh, Charlie has a great night with the waitress who turns out she uh, she fell off the wagon and uh, relapsed with like ketamine or something and she thought she was hallucinating everything even though it was a great night for charlie it was a nightmare for her or she doesn't really remember it but you know, basically a nightmare and then uh that's rum ham and fat mac and and uh frank floating out in the middle of the ocean getting picked up by all the jersey shore guidos uh and having like an awesome boat party uh let's see what else my goodness here uh i'll, I'll get through this quicker because it's getting long but um charlie mcdennis the game of games ep- an episode that i watch regularly even if i don't watch the entire season or anything i watch this episode regularly where we get the raising of the flags we get the whole game rules we get them all the stuff they have to do all the the quiz items and stuff it's it is just endlessly funny um the gang tries desperately excuse me the gang desperately tries to win an award they're kind of they're kind of not at the fact that at this point in i think it was a season this is a season 11 episode 
they hadn't been nominated for like anything at all at this point. And um, something that uh, that came up at this year's Emmys, this past year's Emmys, the fact that they've never been nominated for anything. And it's a complete, it's not a mystery. Um, it is that the Academy doesn't, the, the Academy, the, um, I, I don't know who, I don't know who the voting body for the Emmy Awards is, but um, they just don't want to, they don't want to reward a show like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, so the gang tries, desperately tries to win an award is just a complete, just a complete uh, send up of, of that whole idea of like what they have to be like, right? What, what, what the show, sh- that what you basically get a look at what this sitcom would be like if it was more of a traditional sitcom and how all their attempts to be a normal sitcom go awry because they just can't do it. We have Mac Day where we meet Country Mac. Um, and that's all I need to say about that. It's fantastic. Uh, the Gang Beats Boggs, one of the best episodes of all times, of all time where they, um, they try to, on a cross-country flight, they try to drink 70 beers on the cross-country flight and hilarity ensues. Charlie manages to do it. It's, it's an incredible episode. Incredible episode. Charlie Work is the episode I mentioned previously that has the 13-minute uh, long you know, single-shot cut. It's uh, it's not a it's not an actual single shot, but uh, I, th- I think there's a six-minute single shot in there. But it is stitched together to make it look like a single, like one long uh, single shot, and it's a complete um, in the classic era one of their real standout examples of them kind of dipping more into the expressionist era doing some of the surreal stuff uh, with this Charlie Work episode, which is kind of almost, it has a rhythm to it. It's almost borderline, it's borderline a musical almost, um, which they will do, which they've already done before a little bit with The Nightman Cometh, um, but they will do obviously later. Uh, let's see here. Charlie McDennis 2, Electric Boogaloo. The gang hits the slopes where they do a parody of all these, uh, you know, 1980s uh, and early 90s uh, ski movies uh, where all the hip rad guys were like the, uh, you know, the ski instructors living on the mountain, just kind of freewheeling. Great, great, great episode. My favorite episode of all time is from this era as well. Mac and Dennis move to the suburbs. It is, it is essentially what would happen if you let Stanley Kubrick direct an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It is this is a horror movie in a 23 minute episode and it's still funny all the way throughout, but it it really highlights the sort of thin line between it highlights the thin line between comedy and horror and how, when you, if you really just put things into a slightly different light, how terrifying some of the things that Mac and Dennis do really are. And uh, it's man. I just, I, I think of the, the sort of the phantom, the, you know, when Dennis is fantasizing about telling off Wally and he has this whole like angry diatribe about how hot it is. And he just begins taking off his clothes and screaming at his neighbor, Wally Schmidt, who's not related to Mike Schmidt. Don't tell his wife though. Um, Mac and Dennis move to the suburbs. My favorite episode. It's just, man, it's just fantastic. It is so, again, if Stanley Kubrick directed an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, this would be the end result. It's, it's unbelievable. And then we wrap up with, I think, um, again, kind of in the same way that um, The Nightman Cometh was like a break wall for the uh, for the teething era going into the classic era. The Gang Goes to Hell. It's actually two two episodes. It's a two-parter. 
Um, but you know, whatever, if you're, I'm pretty sure if you watch it on streaming, it's just like one big episode. Um, but the gang goes to hell is sort of their kind of one of their first expressionist era type of episodes where we're kind of bending the reality of what's going on. And we're playing with, we're playing with stuff like character deaths and, uh, you know, deeper meanings of things. We're, we're getting into a few more, we're getting to a few, we're getting to more, um, we are getting to more emotional and deeper deeper character connections than we had in previous seasons and previous episodes with this particular episode, which, again, kind of functions as this sort of... You could consider The Gang Goes to Hell almost the first episode of the Expressionist era or call it the, call it the break wall uh, for where the classic era ends and the Expressionist era begins. All right, I know that part was very long, um, but... Like I said, that's the classic era. It's, it's the classic era for a reason. There's just so much. There's just so much that happened in those seasons that is so good that it's it, you. I, I cut out like there's a lot of episodes that I'm like, you know what? You're already mentioning this episode. No need to mention that episode. So I already cut like I cut a bunch of stuff out from from that whole diatribe that it just went on. Um, but it, it it still is just that bloated because the episodes from this era are that good. So now we're getting into the Expressionist era, seasons 12 through 16, or you know, 12 through the current times. Um, and this is where we have, as I mentioned before, we we kind of have done, we've partially done musical stuff, but now we're going to do a, now we're going to do one that plays on racist tropes and also is a musical at the same time, The Gang Turns Black. Um, it's this kind of fantasy, this kind of, you know, everyone kind of having a, a, maybe a shared hallucination, a dream, whatever, um, wherein, um, the gang wakes up and everyone sees them as, uh, various black people. Um, and they just play with the stereotypes of it. You know, they're trying to get into their own car, please stop them. Uh, you know, when Charlie, the way Charlie talks about, uh, his relationship with his mother and his dad, it, it does sound like a very kind of stereotypical, you know, with social workers talking, it does kind of sound like what you would think of as being a stereotypical black, uh, backstory for a black character in any kind of sitcom or or drama, especially. Um, great episode. The gang goes to a water park. Just a, a top to bottom hysterical episode. We get the uh, Benioff and Weiss cameo as the that is so apropos. The two guys not paying attention to what's happening on the water slide that gets, keeps getting packed full of kids. Uh, as though they were two guys not paying attention to their uh, hugely successful TV show uh, called Game of Thrones. Have you ever heard of it? Um, not paying attention to what was happening to their hugely successful TV show as it kind of uh, came across the finish line in far worse shape than it started. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a great episode. Um, the, the, you know, just the, the grift, the... The way that um, the way that Dennis picks up the young girl who's also like the better grifter, and it kind of how they form a bond uh, over just being scumbags, and being and being complete psychopaths. It, it's such a fantastic episode. Uh, we have Old Lady House, which is their direct sort of commentary on sitcoms, uh, where <clears throat> where Bonnie and um, and Mrs. Mac move in together, and they put cameras throughout the house originally to see if. Uh, I think Bonnie says that Mrs. Mac like hits her or something like that. So they put cameras in to see who's lying and it just becomes, it just becomes them manipulating the situation for their own entertainment. 
as they watch the old lady house sitcom and even add in like a laugh track and stuff like that. Um, and they just sit there and watch all this unfold. D per usual tries to get in, tries to get into the sitcom, but it's just like generally ignored by everyone. Fantastic. Hero or hero or hate crime, uh, where we're debating over whether or not, um, who gets to keep this winning scratch off ticket. Um, Mac argues that it's him since he was the victim of a hate crime. They go to multiple arbitrators, um, and this is where we get introduced to the Ass Pounder 5000, the exercise bike that Mac rigs up to, um, you know, to uh, keep you from kind of lollygagging as a giant dildo pops up from the bike every time you, every time you pedal it to keep you kind of upright and, and pedaling uh, instead of sitting down and pedaling. Um, yeah. Uh, the gang does a clip show, which... I wanted to put this in because while it's not even one of my favorites, I love how they subvert the clip show. There was a point in time, young people out there, where TV shows just had recap episodes of things that happened previously. Sometimes they managed to weave in a little bit of a story into it, but a lot of times it was just sort of remember this, and then they would just show clips from previous episodes. There's some like really good and really bad examples of this. Um, uh, there's, I, I know an episode of Star Trek Voyager did its own version of a clip show by having the um, the ship separated into, I want to say it was into quadrants, into different time quadrants. So there were like different things happening on the ship from different time periods of the previous seasons. Um, so it was like, a, it was an interesting way to do it. it. It's not like a full-fledged clip show, but an interesting way to kind of do it. And this was, this was also interesting because as they remember stuff, as they're looking back on stuff, they misremember it as being parts of other sitcoms and parts of other clip shows like every nothing is remembered collectively correctly and even some stuff like and they and it's them you know it's not just actual clips it's them reenacting stuff incorrectly from previous seasons or them reenacting stuff as different characters like they they misremember a whole plot line from Seinfeld as being one of their as being one of their memories um so the gang does a clip show is very funny for that reason and just how it kind of turns the the old and truly the old trope of sitcoms having a clip show turns that up on his head we have mac finds his pride one of the best episodes uh where mac finally comes out kind of completely and officially and they're trying to get some stuff set up for gay pride but he doesn't know how to tell his dad so he does this interpretive dance that is absolutely gorgeous um mac and kylie shay are the you know mac mac is doing the dancing and he's you know he's very very good for what he's doing he's matched up he's partnered up with kylie shay who is a professional ballerina professional dancer who is incredible and this whole the whole dance sequence the whole interpretive dance sequence is gorgeous um again playing with we create this very surreal reality for this whole thing um and you know of course the one person that he's really trying to reach out to uh, mac is trying to reach out to his dad um doesn't get it and doesn't accept it um frank does he finally gets he finally gets what's going on with mac um i'm not doing this episode enough justice just by describing it here it is 100 an episode you need to watch for yourself uh, mac finds his pride we have the janitor always mops twice their take on a noir where uh charlie is kind of in in the lead role as like the noir detective and it's it's just great it's just it, it's it's such a perfect play such a perfect play on the noir on the noir concept. Uh, it's always sunny style. Such a great episode. D sinks in a bog. Is it is what it is. It's when the episodes when they're in Ireland, 
and uh, D sinks in a bog. And I, I love the, uh, the the best part of this whole episode is the waitress is there, and the waitress says, um, "If you can tell me, if you can tell me, if you know my name, say my name. I will help you out of this bog." And there are two full scenes with with D just naming every woman's name she can think of while she slowly sinks into this bog. Um, and cause no one knows the waitress's name. No one bothers to get the waitress's name. Um, it's, it's just so great. Just such a fun, just such a fun moment. One of the few moments where one of our other characters does get sort of a moment of retribution, a moment of glory over one of the core cast members. Um, D sinks in a bog. Love it. Um, <clears throat> see what else we have here. Um, Frank shoots every member of the gang. It exactly what it is. It's Frank shoots every member of the gang. We talked about how um, we talked about how um, uh, excuse me in the in the intervention episode. Trying to think of the episode. That's like the first appearance of like Frank just carrying a gun around, and they finally think by the, now. So that was like in season. What did I say? Frank gets an intervention. It's like season four or five, I believe. Um, season or excuse me. It's uh, season five, and um, yeah, it's one of the classic episodes. Um, but we it took them to to season um, fifteen, so it takes them like almost ten years to finally come around to maybe Frank having a gun isn't the greatest idea, and it takes that and all of them getting shot by Frank for them to finally come to this decision. Um, Risky Rats Pizza and Amusement Center. Uh, this is from the most recent season and I, I love this as I'm actually going to explain this one here in a little, a little bit deeper in a little bit, but I love the episode. It's got some great one-liners and we get to kind of get a look in their past. And also like you get a look at how kind of openly inappropriate the past was, you know, the way that, uh, certain, certain characters were, um, think of it like as a Chuck E. Cheese, right? And how certain characters in this in the lineup of mascots and things that would have been at this uh, kid's amusement center, how they were portrayed um, is just like wildly inappropriate by any standard. But, you know, 30, you know, 35 years ago, we weren't really thinking about it that way. Um, And then Dennis takes a mental health day. This is the season finale of the most recent episode, most recent season, excuse me, uh, where it, it does, it does kind of feel like a very full circle. As I mentioned before, it feels like a very full circle kind of episode for someone like me, who who remembers how analog the first season was, but um, very telling that someone uh, like Dennis, who's you know approximately the same age as me, I think he's, I think the gang is about collectively anywhere from like three to five years older, three to six years older, something like that. They're like all mid forties, um, but very telling how the things that you you normally do are increasingly have been increasingly um, have had another layer put on them with technology like you can't there are places like you can't just pay with cash you have to like pay through an app there are places um you know that like uh you know like a tesla like a you know a smart car um there are no keys you like you have to like program the fucking thing open it's this kind of stuff that is you know someone um again being like of the approximate age as everyone in in uh everyone in the gang um i remember a time when things were very analog and how in our lifetimes things have become so much more digital and so much more as just so much more unnecessarily complicated in many cases and how difficult it is to kind of reach people 
that try to find people that can actually fix your problem anymore and how this drives Dennis to like absolute madness. Um, so those are like the notable, as I said, there's a lot of swings and I think there are some swings and misses more so in this time period. Um, so those to me were like the, the hits. I did kind of want to point out a few of the misses that they had. Some of the, some of the, some of the ones where they went for it and it just didn't quite land. Um, a, cr- a cricket's tale, which is a, obviously a, a rickety cricket centric episode that kind of piggybacks off of another episode in the same season. Um, it's kind of like his, it's his, it's his angle of what happened in the previous episode. I can't remember which, which, yeah, can't remember which episode it is, but it's like a day in the life of Rickety Cricket, him kind of trying to get clean or whatever. Um, and it turns out that like this cute girl that he meets, uh, it's actually him still being kind of smacked on, uh, smacked on Crystal Method. And it's actually, he's been just hanging out and making out with a dog the entire episode. Um, and it's, there's, there's definitely funny parts to it, but it just doesn't like hit and land the same way as some of the other ones where they're kind of playing with perception and hallucination and reality. It just doesn't land that well. The gang makes, the gang makes Patty's great again. I believe this is the first episode of season 13, um, wherein we bring in, um, Mindy Kaling as this very kind of Trumpian figure. And it just doesn't, I don't know. It, it, one thing that has always thrown off the vibe of every every Sunny episode is when the guest star is too big or too notable or comes with an energy that just doesn't fit. And like that was kind of on purpose. Like she wasn't supposed to necessarily fit in with the gang, but it, it just feels like it feels like the show is very much not It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And I know that was partially the purpose of including Mindy Kaling, who's totally totally good actress. Totally good writer. Um, I have nothing against her whatsoever. It's just like this wedging her in this didn't didn't fit. Um, the gang beats Boggs. The ladies reboot was just it it, it missed the mark for so many reasons because it really was it, like I get it. It's 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 sort of it's playing with the idea that like women can do anything that men can do, um, and it's true women can do anything that men can do. Um, but in this case, it just kind of to me it felt like it was stretching that in a very bad way and trying to trying to poke at it in a, in a bad way and it's it kind of just comes it really does come across as not being particularly funny even though they're going with the they're trying to go for the same thing the jokes again are like are basically the same jokes it just i i, I don't know it's it, something there's a lot about it this it, it's one of those it's one of the continue like if you look across like imdb or like metacritic and those kind of sites You'll see it is one of the lowest rated episodes. I think it might be the lowest rated episode of the series. And I don't think that's a mistake at all. Um, it just doesn't. I get what they're going for. They just missed it. That's all. Uh, there's a woman's right to chop about uh, short haircuts that just kind of lands odd. Um, waiting for Big Mo where they're in the lazy. It's it's definitely a very contemplative episode about like where they are, um, where they are in terms of um, personally, in terms of where they are in the Hollywood landscape where the show is presently, it's, it's a very, it's a meditative episode on that. And while I think it's very interesting, well, I think it's very interesting, I think the Risky Rats Pizza and Amusement Center episode does this better. Um, it is, it's obviously like a, you know, like I said, we're getting like an insight into their childhood, but it's also this kind of idea that the things that they found cool, the things that were for them enjoyable, so the things that, you know, the things that like, the entertainment standards that they kind of grew up with 
now you know and, and the episode of risky rats ends with this like catastrophic fire and like kids getting injured and shit um the idea being that you know maybe their place you know their place in the entertainment in the entertainment um sphere um needs to be needs to evolve and be redefined and be a little bit more fluid um and i think waiting for big mo is kind of picking at that i just think uh, and waiting for big mo comes before risky rats i think it's the season i think it's a full maybe in two full seasons before but i just think risky rats kind of has a commentary on that that's a little bit better that's all uh the gang buys a roller rink kind of a look at their early years and there's definitely some funny moments in it but it just felt like very kind of winky like you know, it felt very winky, like when, um, you know, Mac is talking about how cool he is and how he's going to stay cool forever and he loves chicks. It's just like, well, yeah, well, turns out you're gay, but, you know, whatever. And then there's uh, the gang gets cursed where they kind of it's kind of like uh, an episode that is comment making a commentary on their general bad behavior and some of the things that they did do wrong, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, and. It, again, it just sort of it just is one of those things that falls flat. I, I feel like when they make too much of a commentary on on things that when they make too much of a meta commentary about like the place of the show itself, I think that it kind of gets off into a bad direction where it just where we're putting we're putting the jokes aside for something for for a message that I just don't think like, I think people realize at this point that that these people are villains and they're to be satirized. They're to be laughed at. That's why they don't get happy endings. I think people get that now. So I don't feel like this late in the game, you know, season, I think that was like a season 15 episode. I don't think you need to make that commentary necessarily, but they did. And it was okay. This is totally enough. There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with the episode at all. I just think other episodes, uh, conversely, there's the lethal weapon seven episode, um, which tries to address a lot of the things uh, that were controversial in previous episodes. I think that episode does a better job than The Gang Gets Cursed. All right, so that wraps up the Expressionist era. Boy, this part went a lot longer than I thought it was going to, but then I realized I am a person who literally watches uh, Sunny all the time. This is, a, this is a show that I quite literally watch once a year, if not in its entirety, at least I bet I, I, bet I consume 30 to 40 episodes every year of this show, but I usually manage to watch the entire beginning to end. I usually manage to watch all the episodes every single year. Um, I am that big of a fan of the show. I, you know, I, I love going back and, and revisiting stuff. Truly, you can like catch, you catch things that you, you know, because there's always a lot of uh, mental space in between, especially the early episodes to now, you kind of catch things that maybe you missed before or you reevaluate things that you laughed at before. You see them differently now. I love it. it. It's a very, it's an excellent, especially when I'm working, um, and I uh, and I want I need some I need something to kind of have be background noise if I don't want to listen to a podcast or something. Um, I just pop on Sunny and just let it wash over me, uh, basically. And um, yeah, it, it's it's something that basically as long as I can do it, I'll probably end up watching Sunny, doing a yearly rewatch of Sunny. I used to do it with Game of Thrones. I haven't done that in a little while. I think I might might do that again, but certainly. Um, I'm due for, I'm due for my 2024 rewatch of, or at least due to start my 2024 rewatch of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Now, one thing that I, I did note, um, the idea with like the gang gets cursed and the gang makes Lethal Weapon 7 was this idea of kind of making amends for certain things. 
because there are five episodes that you cannot watch. And I think it's ludicrous, but I understand the whole meaning behind it. And even um, <clears throat> even uh, even Rob kind of acquiesced that like they they totally understand why these episodes were removed. Um, a lot of these episodes have a lot of these episodes either have blackface, um, some kind of brown face, or they're playing with racial stereotypes in a very specific way. So here are the episodes that you can't that you cannot stream uh, anywhere. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure if you could buy them or not. Like if you, um, you know, if you if you bought it off of Prime or if you actually bought like physical DVDs, I'm not sure if you can buy them or not. Um, my guess it would be yes. That since you're buying them individually, um, that you probably could. But here are the episodes that you can't find on streaming services. Um, season four, episode three, America's Next Top Patty's Billboard Model Contest. Season six, episode nine, nice. Uh, D. Reynolds, Shaping America's Youth. Uh, this was That was our first uh, Lethal Weapon. That was Lethal Weapon 5, uh, where Rob is in blackface. Um, season 8, Episode 2, The Gang Recycles Their Trash. I think this is like Martina Martinez, one of D's characters. So she's doing uh, brown face, Latino face, whatever you want to call it. Um, season 9, Episode 9, The Gang Makes Lethal Weapon 6, which has a lot of people in blackface. Um, and I believe... Oh, you know what? Actually, it's the first. It's D. Reynolds shaping America's youth. Uh, Frank's also doing like a Native American kind of thing as well. Um, <clears throat> and then season 14, episode three, D-Day, um, kind of a, a, the continuation of Mac Day. Um, D-Day sees everyone playing against their will, playing, um, excuse me, playing uh, D's various characters like Martina Martinez and some other characters. There's like an Irish character too, I believe. But, you know, all of these were kind of pushing into racial boundaries um, and hence why they were removed. So like, I understand the general idea behind this, but if I were, if I were Hulu, um, I would, I would just want to ask point blank. I don't want to ask the, uh, you know, who, whichever executive makes these decisions on, on this type of content. Um, did you solve racism? And I, my guess is that they didn't. And I, the point, the point of them doing blackface, the point of them, you know, doing Native American characters, it's it is because they are they are people of low intelligence and low self awareness. And even in within the episodes, people people routinely make commentary. Other people, but people that aren't them, people routinely make commentary in these episodes like the Lethal Weapon episodes, like D-Day, that, like, essentially, like, hey, guys, this is really fucked up, by the way. And, like, you know that this is, a, like, it is pointed out to them that it's offensive because we are satirizing these type of low self-awareness, shitty characters. And that's what this whole show has always been. And quite frankly, if you want to go back and look at a lot of their other episodes where they begin playing in racial stereotypes, uh, gay stereotypes, uh, trans stereotypes... Um, you, you name it, they, they touch on it in some way, shape or form. You would have to, you would have to literally pull, I don't know, 80% of the episodes from this series because of, because of the context, because of the, because of the, because of the context that they're dealing with, with them. I, I don't, I just don't understand like what necessarily separates these episodes other than the fact that someone is going as far as to put themselves in blackface. And again, 
I get it. I'm not defending blackface whatsoever, although admittedly it sounds like I am. I just don't understand like what the point is when you when you have like literally the first the title of the first episode, the very first episode title is The Gang Gets Racist. And they do some play with racial stereotypes and they do some play with um the whole episode charlie is trying to find a black friend to prove to the waitress that he's not a racist and it's like it's it's so fucking stupid but that is the kind of thing that a low a someone who's of low intelligence and low self-awareness that's the kind of thing that they would think that they need to prove to somebody that they're not racist right like that's the kind of thing they would need to do and yeah, that episode is still available. You can still watch that episode. Um, so I, I just think it was, I think it's just kind of pointless. And I, I've always been a defender of comedy being the, comedy being the, the thing where when, when, when cancel culture to me gets too far, it's when comedians are getting, are getting canceled, quote unquote canceled, even though they're really not, um, they're not, you, they're not getting canceled, but uh, they're just getting some backlash for jokes or whatever. And I and I, I do recognize there are definitely just flat out racist, sexist, um, you know, transphobic, homophobic, whatever, you know, whatever kind of bigoted jokes. I understand that those exist and like they're inappropriate. But I think comedy has always long been at the front of examining, examining things and poking fun. Like there are gay comedians that make fun of the gay lifestyle that you know certain aspects of it and it's like there are there are jokes like that that just they they are the context of the joke and the line they're walking they're they're managing to nail it and there are jokes that aren't um like i I remember watching um an old episode of Chappelle's show where the literally the joke is that he thinks gay people are gross like that's not a joke um that's just him stating something that's like you know he, I can't remember what, what episode it is. I think it's where he has the pretty white girl sing stuff. And like the joke that he makes is, um, I mean, again, it's not a joke. He basically just states that he thinks gay people are gross, except for lesbians. Um, and like, that's not a joke. That's just being a bigot. Whereas there are jokes about this that you can make that kind of are pushing the bounds of, you know, acceptable, you know, acceptable discourse but they're not like going over to just be offensive just for the sake of being offensive. I think is where I'm kind of trying to get this. I'm trying to where I'm trying to kind of draw the distinction, I suppose. But again, those are the episodes you can't watch. I think it's I think it's a little bit um, I think it's overkill, basically. And I think it's like I said, did it solve racism? If you were to pull and I know other episodes have had um, excuse me, other uh, TV shows have had episodes pulled off the streaming services because of um because of you know some kind of perceived uh perceived racist storyline or perceived you know racist uh motivations for something and again i would just ask out loud did that solve racism and if the answer is no i'm not really sure what the point is all right so uh as the president that we set in the first episode i'm going to leave a note uh, in this, uh, with my all these collective DVDs, I guess, um, uh, or maybe we just have a bunch of burned CDs. I don't know. You know what? Even better, we put it on. We put it on a bunch of old VHSs in homage to uh, to It's Sunny. By the way, those VHSs will probably outlast um, a lot of the digital stuff that we have now, but that's neither here nor there. So we're gonna leave a note, kind of instructions for for how people to view to view this or 
you know, kind of make 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 mention of something uh, in in this whole series. So this is the note that I am leaving for future humans to find. Hello, fellow American. This you should watch me. I leave funny good. Thank you. Thank you. If you watch me, I'm hot. Laughs, they'll be higher, son. The binge watch for me is right thing to do, human being. So do. And if you get that, you get five stars and a big old pat in the butt from me. Um, so that's the that's the uh, that's what I'm leaving. That's that's what I'm leaving behind for the future of humanity. Um, but let's get to our top five finisher. I'll, I'll finish this up pretty quickly here since this episode is running even longer than I thought it would. But let's get to our top five finisher. This is our top five recurring sunny characters. Um, so we're going to start with number five here. Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack Kelly, Charlie's creepy Kelly, uh, Bonnie Kelly's brother, um, potentially some kind of child molester, but definitely a terrible lawyer and a terrible person to go seek advice, legal advice from. Uh, but every scene that he's in uh, just gets weirder in the best way. Um, you know, whether it's the, again, whether it's the him kind of talking talking with Charlie about palling around in their old in, in Charlie's old bedroom. Um, the fake hands during the, uh, during the trial of the century, um, uncle Jack always has some, some kind of weird, always comes in with, to make one situation just a little bit weirder. So uncle Jack is number five, number four, speaking of people, you, someone you do want to get legal advice from the lawyer, um, the lawyer pops in at various points in times and is a very often the only, um, the only sane character in any given scene. Um, it's one of the best recurring characters, obviously, but I think, I think, um, his appearances are kind of the high of, are usually of the highest impact where he kind of scams them out of money in the, in the kitten mittens. Um, he challenges Charlie to a duel and he accepts and he like shows him the gun that he's going to shoot Charlie with. It's such a fantastic character, even though he's not in it as, in it as much as he, uh, was previously in previous seasons. Uh, the lawyer is a very high impact, outstanding character. My number three, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a tie simply because they're kind of um, even though one vastly outweighs the other in terms of appearances, they are kind of um, two sides of the same coin, and that's the waitress and the waiter. Um, obviously, the waitress as Charlie's um, obsession, but the waiter as this sort of benign. In this benign interference essentially to their goals so we have obsession on the one side and then just complete um disregard on the other um the waitress obviously involved in many plots and many plot lines um she's you know always ends up worse off after an encounter with them same with the waiter always ends up worse off but because of their negligence and the fact that they don't even acknowledge him um and also he gives rise to again one of the one of the best lines um, where their pre their previous encounter, they tie his shoes together and he falls into a plate of hot spaghetti. And it's like two seasons later where they're back at, uh, at the, at the restaurant. Again, I think it's Mark, I think it's Marconi's. I, I can't remember the name of it, but they're back at the restaurant and, uh, the waiter, you know, basically looks at him and goes, do you, do you not remember who I am? And he, he goes, you know, you push me into a hot plate of spaghetti. And it gives Dennis the line of, am I to remember every man that I've seen fall into a plate of spaghetti? It's like, the audacity and the bizarreness of that line is just so fucking funny. So my number three combined the waitress and the waiter. Uh, 
Uh, number two, Max Dad, Luther McDonald. Um, always a delight when he pops up. So it's just so fucking menacing. Um, he's a giant man. He's menacing, and just the, the lengths that Matt goes to please him, and some of the interactions about like them shoving drugs up their ass, the uh, the court deposition where um, where Mac where Mac's dad is trying to get out, you know, based on like false allegations that uh, uh, Mac and Charlie, you know, bearing false witness against him. There's like the he has like the tape recorded um, tape recorded conversation between them about uh, you know you know about how max how max dad luther is going to rape him till the room stinks stinks like butt um it's just every time he's he's he pops up good god something you just know something great's going to happen so my number two luther mcdonald and my number one maybe not what you think or maybe it is what you think but i'm, I'm going to explain here rickety cricket um matthew mara uh, father matthew mara his descent from uh from an ordained priest now to a homeless guy turning tricks in the streets for drugs and alcohol um, is just been one of the most delightful downfalls of any character. Um, and, you know, the the fact that no none of the characters take any any part in what happened, what has happened to him over the years. No one takes any responsibility for it, even though they are the ones, in fact, caused him to uh, caused him to to lose his faith and lose his way. Uh, it's every time he shows up, my goodness, some it's you're just ready you are ready to laugh as soon as rickety crickets um you know disgusting marled face shows up and just starts talking Ugh, fantastic so rickety cricket my number one recurring character i'm here's who i didn't name and it's because i think they exist in yet a different realm and that's the mcpoils collectively the mcpoils there's um yeah liam is like the main one jimmy simpson's character um, you always gotta love when Jimmy Simpson pops up into something, but the McPoyles, whenever the Liam, Ryan, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember their deaf sister's name, Margaret, Margaret McPoyle. And uh, there's a whole ton of the McPoyle clan. I put them in a different, I just kind of think of them differently because obviously they're recurring characters, but they're almost like themselves are like set pieces. Like when they show up, it's a whole, the episode is going in a very different direction. Um, than when just like one recurring character shows up. Um, the episode's going to go because you're, you're going to encounter all of the McPoyles. So I just kind of put them in a different category unto themselves. They are, I don't know, like super duper special recurring characters, I guess. Like I said, they're in a tier all of their own. The McPoyles are fantastic. I love whenever they show up. But that is my top five finisher, my top five recurring sunny characters. One more time, Uncle Jack, the lawyer, the waitress and the waiter, Luther McDonald, Rickety Cricket, and the McPoyles get their own special designation as uh, being almost a fabric piece of the show themselves. All right, and that's it. That wraps up this installment of The Vault. Hopefully I have convinced you that It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is, in fact, vault-worthy. Just as vault-worthy as the thing, but uh, for different reasons. Um, but next week, we are welcoming back a surprise guest to talk about well once i tell you the movie if you if you know me you probably aren't, won't be surprised by the guests at all but next week we are talking about our third vault entry one of the greatest independent movies of all time one of the greatest stoner movies of all time greatest 90 movies 90s movies of all time uh gen x movies of all time that's right we are talking about dazed and confused as our third vault entry next week stay tuned for that one you're gonna like it i promise but 
Until next week, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. We will see you on the flip side. Oh, uh, you know, don't forget to find us on Instagram. Find us on Facebook at The Occasionalist. Uh, I think it's at The Occasionalist Podcast on Instagram. The Occasionalist on Facebook. Uh, leave a comment, subscribe, like, do all the, you know, the podcasty stuff you're supposed to do, right? Help us out here. And we will see you next time. <laughs>